0: First of all, thank you to the Society for inviting me. And I want to extend my particular personal thanks to Richard and to Martin and Caroline Notcut for the extraordinary labour of love they put into making this possible. Now, the title of this symposium, Spiritual Realisation knowledge and practice is interesting because many people of insight and wisdom speaking and working today are inviting us to step outside of any previous categorization of what counts as spiritual and what doesn't and instead to simply investigate honestly, compassionately and intimately the truth of our own nature as human beings and the facts of our deepest experience of ourselves. And this is no other than the invitation Ibn Arabi has extended to us through exposing the height and depth of the prophetic saying, he who knows himself knows his Lord. Now, as Cecilia mentioned, I have chosen to talk about Ibn Arabi and the modern mindfulness movement because recently two great rivers in my life, one great river in my life, Ibn Arabi, has been joined by another, mindfulness. Ibn Arabi was, of course, a master of spiritual realisation, coming from the heart of one of the world's greatest and richest spiritual traditions. Mindfulness has its roots in another of our great spiritual traditions, Buddhism. But in its modern form, it is presented as being completely secular, emphasizing only the practice of moment-by-moment awareness of life unfolding as it is right now. And it is my experience that bringing these two together is enriching both. Now this is a vast subject and we don't have much time. So I'm only going to touch on a few examples of how both a modern practice and a timeless master can connect us with some of the essential qualities of our human experience. I'm going to look at awareness, real presence, breathing, and thinking. And I'm also going to say a little bit about what the modern mindfulness movement is, because I gather that there are quite a few people here who don't know. And I'm also going to say how it started, because I think it's very important. Now, I've been studying Ibn Arabi for most of my adult life, starting when I was a student here at this university many years ago. And for me, the experience was quite literally life-changing. I was pursuing a postgraduate academic path, but coming across the writings of Ibn Arabi, began to answer questions which had long plagued me, such as, why do I exist? What is a human being? What is life, really? And I say plagued me because not neither my physics, nor my psychology, nor my philosophy had even begun to answer those questions with the depth and expansiveness that Ibn Arabi does right from the start. So I literally changed course. My studies of Ibn Arabi were, as Cecilia said, through the Bashara School, which offers an education in self-knowledge described as contemporary, culturally relevant, and engaging, all in the light of the unity of existence. In the courses, and some of them are six months long, the student is immersed in the study of Ibn Arabi and others of wisdom seven days a week, combined with three daily meditations, contemplative practice, and work. In other words, the aim is to immerse with all of yourself, mind, body, and spirit, and soul, in what Ibn Arabi exposes of the truth of the human potential. He engages us with the knowledge of oneself in expression here and now as myself with no gaps or otherness. This is beautifully summarized in the following lines, and I thank Cecilia for this wonderful translation, new translation of Know Yourself, which I cannot recommend more highly. I know the Lord through the Lord without doubt or uncertainty. My essence is really his essence without lack or imperfection. There is no otherness between them and myself is the place where the invisible appears. In short, reality is knowable through the deepest fact of our own experience. And this is true for all human beings, regardless of age, religion, race, or culture. Knowable, but rarely known, because we distract ourselves by thinking of ourselves as separate. And by thinking of ourselves as separate, we see everything else as separate too. Now, the quest to know ourselves according to unity has long been identified as a spiritual quest. And if we take the essential reality of the person, the uncreated, unborn, and undying reality to be spirit, then it is indeed a spiritual quest. But according to the vision, wherever you turn, there is the face of God. This cannot be restricted to any limited understanding of what is spiritual and what isn't. As we learn from the first sentence of the Fusus, the complete human potential is a mirror to everything. And everything can bring to the receptive and awake heart the scent of the real beloved. Spiritual practice or daily work, nature or technology, a friend or an enemy, anything and everything. It depends on how things are seen, or better, who the seer is known to be. It depends on awareness. If someone asks, what is the way to knowledge of the self and knowledge of God? The answer is, it consists in being aware that God is and nothing is with him. And he is now as he was. This is an absolutely dazzling answer. It depends on awareness. And for Ibn Arabi, this awareness is the consciousness that the one has of itself, by which it knows itself and loves itself in all its forms. And the place of this consciousness is the complete human, the Insani Kamil, again, as the first sentence of the Fusus points out, This unlimited consciousness is the root of all human awareness and experience. However limited, misconstrued or covered over, that awareness may be. For according to unity, what other consciousness is there? I want to dwell on this for a moment because to me this is utterly miraculous the fact that this unlimited consciousness that the one has of itself can appear in this world as me, for example, sitting on a bus and watching the city go by, lost in a dream of ignorance. It can appear as me in my limited form and yet be completely itself. This, to me, is truly a mystery of love. Because of an innocent misunderstanding, you think that you are a human being in the relative world seeking an experience of oneness. But actually, you are the one expressing itself as the experience of being a human being. If sheer awareness is the root of all human experience, surely it must be possible, through our experience, to trace back to the root. And this is what mindfulness is about. Mindfulness refers to the practice of moment-by-moment awareness direct experience and to the toolbox, if you can call it that, of meditative practices intended to help us trace our awareness back to its root. And please note this distinction. Moment by moment awareness is actually intrinsic to being itself, ever awake, Ever aware. It is not something we have or get. It is something we already are. Practices are what we intentionally commit ourselves to in order to realise that. Moment-by-moment awareness is surely the aim of any real spiritual education. And Bulent Rauf founder of the Bashara School and of this society, wrote, the degree of evolution of a person is measurable only by the constancy of their awareness of reality. Now, although in English we might associate the word mind with thinking, mindfulness is not Thought, it is not a cognitive faculty. It refers to direct experience. In true mindfulness, heart and mind are inseparable. Mindfulness is actually inseparable from love because the consciousness that being has of and for itself is intrinsically compassionate, intrinsically loving. So please keep this in mind as we go on, and whenever you hear me say mindfulness, think heartfulness. So here are some definitions of mindfulness from modern practitioners. Knowing what is happening, while it is happening without preference. The awareness that arises when we pay attention on purpose, in the present moment, non-judgmentally, to things as they are and as if our life depended on it. Inhabiting the present moment with awareness, equanimity, clarity, and caring a radical act of love. In the modern mindfulness movement this invitation to constancy of awareness of reality is couched in completely secular language. It is open to everyone whatever their background and it does not require anyone to have any conscious motivation towards self-knowledge or spiritual seeking. Many come to it in order to relieve unbearable suffering, as we'll soon see. People are simply invited to investigate the fact of their own awareness and to do this to whatever depth suits them. Moment-by-moment awareness is usually the hardest thing for us. Our minds are occupied with the past, the future, daydreams, fantasies, worries, anything. Usually a veil of thought, dense or subtle, separates us from direct experience of the moment. So, most of us need a little bit of encouragement and this is what the mindfulness practices provide. They derive from Buddhism, but they are not presented as Buddhism. They are presented simply as practices. They are concerned with the cultivation of embodied awareness, clarity, equanimity and compassion And as such, they are completely universal. Now, how did the modern mindfulness movement come about? It really begins with the work of John Kabat-Zinn, a deeply committed practicing Buddhist and trained as a molecular biologist. In the mid-1970s, he was profoundly questioning what his in his terms, karmic assignment, might be. In other words, what is my real purpose here? How can I be of service? And I'm going to read you his own account of what happened because it's important, and you'll see why. In 1976, I went to work at the almost brand-new University of Massachusetts Medical School. All the while, my koan about what I was really supposed to be doing with my life in terms of right livelihood was unfolding in the background. On a two-week Vipassana retreat, that's a particular Buddhist retreat, at the Insight Meditation Society in the spring of 1979, while sitting in my room one afternoon about day 10 of the retreat, I had a vision that lasted maybe 10 seconds. I don't really know what to call it, so I call it a vision. It was rich in detail and more like an instantaneous seeing of vivid almost inevitable connections and their implications. It did not come as a reverie or thought stream, but something quite different, which to this day I cannot fully explain and I don't feel the need to. I saw in a flash not only a model that could be put in place, but the long-term implications of what might happen if the basic idea was sound and could be implemented in one test environment. Namely, it would spark new fields of scientific and clinical investigation and would spread to hospitals and medical centres and clinics across the country and around the world and provide right livelihood for thousands of practitioners. Because it was so weird, I hardly ever mentioned this experience to others but after the retreat I did have a better sense of what my karmic assignment might be and it was so compelling that I decided to take it on as wholeheartedly as I could. Pretty much everything that I saw in those 10 seconds has come to pass. It struck me in that fleeting moment at the Insight Meditation Society that it would be a worthy work to share the essence of meditation practice as I had been learning and practicing at that point for 13 years with those who would never come to a place like the Insight Meditation Center or a Zen Center and who would never be able to hear it through the words and forms that were being used in meditation centers. Why not make meditation so commonsensical that anybody would be drawn to it? Why not develop an American vocabulary that spoke to the heart of the matter and didn't focus on the cultural aspects of the the traditions out of which the Dharma emerged? However beautiful they might be. Now, Jim, what would you call that? What would Ibn Arabi call that kind of a vision? Yeah. Could you say that a little louder? Okay, a direct witnessing. Okay. And I wanted to read you this because really something real is happening it started with a real vision of, as he said, inevitable connections and their implications. And pretty much everything he saw in those 10 seconds has come to pass. He started working in the hospital with people suffering from incurable pain. He made it clear that he was not offering to cure their pain, but to change their relationship to it by introducing them to mindfulness practices. He knew the practices were drawn from Buddhism. They didn't and didn't need to. They just had to do them for eight weeks, 45 minutes every day. The results were spectacular and humbling. Not only did the patients change their relationship to their pain, they found something that changed their lives. His approach, known as Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, MBSR, has gone viral and is now in widespread use across the world, both in hospital settings and as courses for the general public. People everywhere want it. It is meeting a real need and receptivity of our time. In this country, Professor Mark Williams of the Oxford Mindfulness Centre, part of Oxford University, has developed a variant of MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, called Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy, Although this is widely available to everyone and without naming names quite a number of people in this room have actually done or doing this course it was first developed as a clinical in a clinical setting as a treatment for recurrent depression it is now recognised in the UK by our national institute of clinical excellence as the preferred method of treatment in recurrent depression. Being more successful in preventing relapse than drug therapy. And it is available on our National Health Service for clinical patients. Even a few years ago, who would have thought that courses based on meditation would be available on our National Health Service? The times they are a in, as Bob Dylan says. <laughs> so, his work has shown that if you intentionally commit to daily practice, 45 minutes a day, for a period of eight weeks, then significant changes are observable. They obs- are observable experientially and in terms of... Of changes to the structure and function of the brain. If we've time in the seminar we'll go into this more. Typically the training sessions are two hours once per week or perhaps a fortnight a month for three months in which you are introduced to guided practices such as an eating meditation, a body scan, mindful movement, walking meditation, sitting meditation, all aimed at developing full, embodied awareness of yourself and your environment in the present moment. You learn to work with different foci of attention, the breath, the body, sounds, thoughts, emotions, and finally to rest in what is called choiceless awareness, a vast spaciousness in which whatever occurs is seen and recognized for what it is, without distraction, grasping, or rejection. Most importantly of all, you are encouraged to bring mindfulness into everyday life, starting with a routine activity such as brushing your teeth or washing up and gradually expanding into more and more areas. For the real arena of mindfulness is life itself, not formal practice. The degree of evolution of a person is measurable only by the constancy of their awareness of reality. And what is undertaken initially for eight weeks commonly develops into the journey of a lifetime. As John Kabat-Zinn said, he wanted to reach out to people in a way that extends beyond the appeal of traditional religious or spiritual forms. So mindfulness is not presented as a spiritual path. Its approach is much more empirical. Just do it, totally, sincerely, and with all of yourself. And then discover what you discover. And I want to emphasize the significance of this because it has two sides. One side is that yes, indeed, it does reach out to people who have no conscious interest in spirituality. But the other side is, because it is secular, because this is a practice emphasizing moment-by-moment awareness, it can sit hand-in-hand with any other religious or spiritual path and not interfere with it. In fact, it can enhance it. So it can sit hand in hand with any spiritual practice that someone undertaking a different path may be developing. This is one of its great strengths and has huge possibilities for the future. Having said that it's not a spiritual path, when you look closely... It has great similarities. It just isn't called that. A rose by any other name would smell as sweet, said Shakespeare. Mindfulness can be a way of simply relieving suffering. And any relief of suffering is of benefit but it can also be a gateway to a much deeper self-knowledge. So much depends on your attitude, the intention which you bring to paying attention, your aim in undertaking the practice. In modern mindfulness, there are seven attitudinal factors, as they're called. They resemble the qualities of the way which Ibn Arabi's saintly wife Miriam was shown in a dream. Trust, certainty, patience, resolution and veracity. And this resemblance is so interesting that I'd like to go over it in this afternoon's seminar. I'd just like to mention that one of the primary factors is what is called beginner's mind. And that is, the mind that encounters everything as if for the first time, which is why I asked Cecilia to introduce me simply as the person who's standing in front of you. But I want to now just look at some of the correspondence between what the practice of mindfulness directs you to and what Ibn Arabi informs and advises us about from his degree of spiritual realisation. I want to look quickly at the question of real presence, breathing and thinking. Not from the point of view of trying to correlate Ibn Arabi and mindfulness, because I think that would be utterly pointless, but to show how both deal with realities of our human nature, which are absolutely universal. the most important factor in mindfulness practice is to bring your whole being to the present moment as fully as possible. I'm sure that many of us hearing that will remember with a smile the words of one of Ibn Arabi's early teachers, Fatima of Cordova, mentioned in Sufis of Andalusia that Jim referred us to earlier. Of those who come to see me, I admire none more than Ibn Arabi. The rest of you come with part of yourselves, leaving the other part preoccupied with your concerns. While Ibn Arabi is a consolation to me, for he comes with all of himself. When he rises up, it is with all of himself. When he sits down, it is with his whole self, leaving nothing of himself elsewhere. This is how it should be on the way. And this is what mindfulness is about. Leave your concerns and be totally present with all of yourself to life unfolding itself as you, right here, right now. The focus is being, not thinking or doing. It is about being awake to the present moment, however that moment is unfolding, easy or difficult. This is no easy matter, because as we know, our usual mode of consciousness is one of total distraction. But given the hadith, every moment... He is in a different configuration. Now is the only moment we have. And if we are not alive to now, then are we truly alive? What about breathing? Again, mindfulness practice emphasizes the breath you learn to pay full attention to your breathing as the breath enters the body and as it leaves the body. The breath connects us to the present moment and our sense of self is connected to how we breathe. Each in-breath a new beginning, each out-breath a letting go, a letting be, as Mark Williams says. This is deeply familiar territory for Ibn Arabi. The people of perfection are they who, paying attention to their breathing, become like guardians to the treasury of their hearts. What befits the man of Gnosis and is necessary for him to do is that he should take each breath from God and return it to him. It is equally allowable to interpret this breath, nafas, as the self, nafs. The profound connection between breath and self is, of course, easier in Arabic because the words are related. It is a remarkable fact that by a slight contraction of a muscle, my diaphragm, the air, which is universal and sustains all life, is drawn into my body and becomes individuated as my breath and sustains life as me. Perhaps it's better to say, I become individuated in that breath. For Ibn Arabi, all breath is the breath or self of the compassionate, the nafs -er rahman which manifests in itself the whole universe, including ourselves. I'm grateful to Stephen Hertenstein, wherever he is there, because he pointed out to me that in its grammatical form, the word nafas, breath, implies flowing whereas nafs, self, implies a stopping in that flow. A nafs is a form that the flow of the breath takes, continually renewed at each instant. Ibn Arabi advises, and mindfulness practice directs you to the experience of surrendering to the constant renewal each in-breath a new beginning, each out-breath a letting go, a letting be. If we do not surrender to that continual renewal of being represented by the breath, then we give the nafs a permanence that does not belong to it. We create an illusion of self-existence This is such a profound mystery that I personally welcome every opportunity to explore as deeply as possible this mystery of the breath. And thinking, well, more than anything else, thinking takes us away from the present moment. Anybody Well, most people who try to pay attention to a particular thing, their breathing, their body, whatever, find that within moments, your thoughts have taken you elsewhere. You've gone. Now, essential to mindfulness practice is to recognise that thoughts are simply events which arise in our minds and then pass. They are passing events, not objective reality. And this applies even to the most damaging thoughts. But instead of recognizing them for what they are and letting them go, most of us, most of the time, cling on to them. Without even noticing that we're doing it, we graft onto them a whole package of emotions and past associations and bodily feelings, we give the thoughts a degree of existence that does not belong to them. And by so doing, we continually recreate our sense of I. This clinging creates our sense of I. The Buddha, in fact, summarized his whole teachings as nothing is to be clung to as I, me, or mine. The kernel of the kernel, inspired by Ibn Arabi, goes further and informs us that how we receive our thoughts, what we do with them, actually really matters. If a thought a visitor from heaven, arrives to find a place of reception that is preoccupied, full of its own concerns, then the thought takes on the colour of that concern. And this colouring determines the place to which the thoughts return and the thoughts wait for us there until we're asked to account for them. Even though God is the creator of all thoughts, all the same, the servant is subject to questioning due to his own unmindfulness. So the way we treat our thoughts is of great importance. And the more our self-knowledge deepens, the more the greater responsibility we have for how we treat them. I, had, I think I'm running out. Am I okay for time? Yeah, you're right. Okay, okay. for time? Okay. Um, in mindfulness, you are encouraged to really recognize the distinction between awareness and the forms it takes. And these forms can be anything, bodily, sensory, mental, psychological, spiritual, all are forms of awareness. So, for example, if you find yourself feeling angry and you're aware that you're feeling angry, then you can ask yourself, is my awareness of anger angry? And you find that it's not. So you distinguish between the I who is aware and what that I is aware of. You distinguish between the subject and the object. But subject and object can also dissolve into pure, undivided awareness. For example, when I taste an apple but really taste it, subject and object dissolve. There's no me tasting an apple. There is just pure tasting. Awareness meets itself knows itself and loves itself as that tasting. The love to be known has been realized and this degree of loving to be known can only happen here in this world where there are apples and people with taste buds. This is the shattering of the ordinary to which Ibn Arabi refers. When each moment is recognised as an instance of the love of the one to be known in forms, then nothing can ever be ordinary. Moving a finger is extraordinary. Taking a step on this earth is extraordinary. Life is extraordinary. Only in our ignorance do we see it as routine. So to conclude, why bring Ibn Arabi and the modern mindfulness movement together? I would like to suggest two possible considerations, one more individual, the other more collective. In classical Buddhist teachings, the word mindfulness has three aspects. Awareness, mindfulness and care. Awareness is being aware of what is happening while it is happening. Mindfulness implies a mind which is full. Mind full. That is, a mind which is remembering its original purpose. In Buddhism, of course, this remembering is firmly rooted in Buddhist values and teachings. To me, a remembering rooted in the wisdom of the Seal of Saints is something wholly to be welcomed and explored. Ibn Arabi shows us what awareness is aware of, when that awareness awareness is the love and knowing that being has of itself in all its plenitude. And he shows us ourselves, who we are, where we come from, where we're going. I mentioned earlier the importance of your aim in undertaking mindfulness practice. I suggest that when the mind is full, in this sense of having integrated what Ibn Arabi shows us of the unity of existence and the complete human potential, then your aim is directed towards realisation of that and guided by it. And equally, as the practice of mindfulness aims to wake you up to life, And as Ibn Arabi didn't write about mindfulness, he wrote from it, it is my experience that the mindfulness practice also helps to wake you up to the texts in a new way. So to me, the timeless master and the modern practice really do go hand in hand. It also happens, and I've seen this in my own own experience of mindfulness practice, that many people who come to mindfulness practice with no particular background find that as their practice deepens, they want to know more about the self they are discovering. And they come to want to study a source of wisdom. I believe that for those of us who wish to do so, bringing together a deep study and remembering of what Ibn Arabi shows us, an ever fuller practice of moment-by-moment awareness, can bring only good and could well be of interest to many more people than we now know. The other consideration is more collective just as any individual may progress towards greater realisation of their original purpose. So the same is true for humankind as a collective. As a living presence, Ibn Arabi overlooks both these aspects. The Fusus, for example, deals with both individual realisation and the progress of mankind towards perfectibility. Because both individual human and collective humanity are images of one single nafs, loving to be known. And the movement of existence is towards a greater and more universal expression of that. The receptivity of humankind is being prepared through both extraordinary possibility and extraordinary difficulty for a more collective or global realization of our true purpose. And here I want to pick up on something Stephen mentioned this morning in in his introduction. When one of Ibn Arabi's followers in Egypt said, the knowledge that is proper to this group is spiritual realisation but the minds of ordinary people cannot bear it. Well, perhaps they can and perhaps they need to. And I suggest that a movement like the modern mindfulness movement is playing a role in this. Because although it invites people simply to the practice of direct awareness of the moment, what this practice leads to and has at its core is the aim of introducing anyone, whatever their belief and whatever they consider themselves to be, spiritual or not spiritual, to awareness of that pure, compassionate being who is present as ourselves and who loves to be known by and through us. In the abstract to a recent paper, John Kabat-Zinn wrote, the author's perspective is grounded in what the Zen tradition refers to as the 1,000-year view. He sees the current interest in mindfulness and its applications as signalling a multidimensional emergence of great transformative and liberative promise. One which, if cared for and tendered, may give rise to a flourishing on this planet, akin to a second and this time global renaissance for the benefit of all sentient beings and our world. I think Ibn Arabi would say amen to that. And may his help and himma extend over all who are sincerely engaged in it. Thank you very much.